You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And today I'm talking about skin cultures. And joining me is Dr. Patrick McMahon from the Division of Dermatology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So thanks so much for joining me today. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So there's a lot of things that we could culture. There's a lot of things that we do culture. Um, There are different reasons that we might culture things. So some might be our, our intellectual curiosity. Um, Some might guide our clinical decision-making or treatments. Some might be for antimicrobial stewardship or public health. So we're going to talk about kind of a broad range of different things that we could do. I'm going to start pretty simply with um, tinea. So sometimes tinea corporis can be difficult to distinguish from nomular eczema. So when would you culture this patch that we're kind of on that border between, and how do you best culture tinea corporis? Yeah, good question. Um, So I agree that it's sometimes difficult to determine when you're looking at an annular patch or plaque if it's definitively tinea or not. Um, So this comes up a lot for us. There are some features just looking at it that help me push me more towards something being ringworm or tinea. Mm -hmm. If there's a really intense edge where it looks very heaped up and scaly, Mm -hmm. and if the family can indicate that there's a good history for it expanding and spreading like tinea might, or of course, if there's family members that have it or good contacts, you know, with pets, etc. Mm-hmm. But specifically about culturing it. Um, so the thing about tinea and the cultures is that they don't come back in a day or two. They come back in a week or two. Right. Sometimes longer if it's a send out culture to, say, um, a lab that's not in your hospital. So that can take actually up to four weeks. And by then, if you're waiting for that to be your deciding factor on when to treat and when not to treat you've already kind of like allowed tinea to spread all over the body. So I actually would say that I don't very commonly culture tinea corporis. We do have the ability as dermatologists and some um, primary physicians and providers may to do a KOH. Um, That takes a little time. It's with a blade usually, so you have to have a compliant patient Mm -hmm. um, so you don't injure them by accident. And um, it's not 100% reliable. So for instance, if I think it's going to, Tip, tip me towards treating them by mouth because I'm worried about a widespread rash being tinea. It'd be nice to know that day if I see florid hyphae under, right. the, under the microscope. So that's something we can do at the bedside to tip us towards treating or not treating. But I'll have to say that if I see a rash that I know has not either been responding like you would expect eczema to or looks enough like ringworm and there's enough history, I will treat empirically before I even would culture because of that delayed turnaround. Mm -hmm. Great. So similarly, tinea capitis can look like other things like subderm in particular. So when should we do a fungal culture of the scalp versus empirically treating with griseofulvin since there's a little bit more harm, you could say, with griseo than a typical antifungal? Yeah, so this is almost the opposite answer. Mm -hmm. I very um, commonly will culture areas on the scalp that look even very much like dandruff or seborrhea. And in some ways, this is specific to certain populations. We know that there's an increased risk of 
Tinea in people with like short curly hair, so mm. darker skin population, African Americans. Um, but there's also other features on their physical exam that might lead you towards it, right? So if there's alopecia or pustules or sometimes those classic broken hairs, mm-hmm. um, lymphadenopathy, and again, the, the you know family history if there's other people. But um, as far as culturing, if I see someone who said, even if they say, I've had itchy scalp for a year and it's very much um, fine scale and mm-hmm. none of those other things I just mentioned, I will culture um, more often than not, and that's because I've been fooled enough where I said, oh, that's probably just dandruff, mm. and it turned out to be tinea. And mm. so the the harm there is not even, yes, there's a harm in empirically treating if they don't have tinea, but there's almost more of a um, issue if you give someone the typical treatment for really bad severia, which would be a topical steroid potentially, mm-hmm. um, and then they're tinea will get a lot worse. So um, if you're not sure, obviously some of the easy things to treat both are ketoconazole, mm-hmm. shampoo or cream, um, selenium sulfide. Uh, but I would say that if I have a very strong suspicion for tinea capitis, I will culture with a toothbrush, and we can talk about that if you want. Mm-hmm. But um, the typical course is either glyzeofulvin for eight weeks, mm-hmm. and um, sometimes we'll use terbinafine first line, especially since, you know, if we're seeing them, they may have already been on glyzeofulvin, right, but right. even if we know that they um, have maybe had tinea in the past that didn't respond, mm-hmm. or if they're old enough, actually, um, sometimes they'll tolerate the pills and it'll just be easier to do mm-hmm. that. But the, the other issue is that Sometimes we'll culture, especially a really boggy or inflamed area, which mm-hmm. you might call a carry-on. And one note there that's very specific is that if you have enough inflammation and potentially even a bacterial superinfection, you might do a surface culture and get a negative result from what is definitely tinea, cor- mm-hmm. tinea capitis. And that's because we think that the tinea is more deep down in the hair follicles. Mm-hmm. So just doing a surface culture is not going to get you your answer. Mm-hmm. So we always say if you trust your, your gut enough that this is definitely tinea, it's, you can treat empirically even if there's a, a negative culture. Right. So still um, follow your clinical Follow your judgment. clinical judgment, yeah. And so whenever I'm teaching trainees about how to culture tinea capitis and I pull out a toothbrush, yeah. they look at me like I'm crazy. So right. tell me, is this the right way and how do you get a good culture? Because yeah. you're always... It feels strange to culture something with a toothbrush. Yeah, definitely. And the kids get a kick out of it too, right? Yeah, when you walk right. up to them and you tell them, this is for your hair. Don't do this at yeah, home, is what I usually tell them. Yes. So, um, so what you're looking for is the, the heaviest scaly area, right? Because mm-hmm. what you're wanting to do is catch enough of that scale. Um, and sometimes even a, a few hairs will break off into the hair, into the toothbrush, which mm-hmm. is great. Um, and what we'll do in our clinic is actually, since we have the plates, the agar plates, we will swab and actually brush the uh, scale onto the plate. In most primary care practices, and even in our satellite clinics where we don't have the plates, you just are trying to get it not just on the heaviest scaly area, but also all around the scalp, anywhere that there might be scale, or even a pustular area, and see if you can pick up enough debris, scale, hair, Mm -hmm. and then put it right into the plate, Mm -hmm. uh, put it into the bag. And always remember to label the toothbrush. Mm Right, so we just want to get as much scale as we can on the bristles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what they tell me in microlab is that they then take that toothbrush and they'll dab it onto the agar mm-hmm. plate and push it into it. Um, they don't, it's not useful to brush scale into the um, specimen bag because mm-hmm. they don't do anything with that, so don't bother. Good to know. So 
Um, similarly, we talked a little bit about eczema, but if a child has a rash that looks like eczema herpeticum mm -hmm. and it's near the eye, should we culture it to confirm the diagnosis so that we know how concerned we should be about the proximity to the eye? Yeah. So, yes, um, and culture is, is now, viral cultures are kind of falling out of favor because mm -hmm. we have um, PCR, and that's a faster turnaround in most institutions. It's available. Um, we send that swab the same way, so it's still in a viral culture medium, but mm -hmm. now it's ordered as a PCR. Okay. And, um, for instance, here at CHOP, we have a turnaround time that's 24 hours, mm -hmm. sometimes and up to 48 hours. But yeah, we actually would culture anywhere on the face that's uh, looking like either HSV or VZV. It'll help direct treatment. And if it's really close to the eye, like eyelid, even while you're waiting for that culture or viral PCR to come back, I would say treating empirically is safer mm -hmm. because of how safe acyclovir is. Right. Uh, and if it's on the eyelid and you're having any concern that it's in the eye or they're having eye pain, mm -hmm. redness of the eye, photophobia, um, then calling ophthalmology and probably admitting for IV acyclovir right. is going to be the best. So absolutely culture around the eye. Great. And to culture for HSV and VZV, yeah. you want to unroof the vesicle? So we used to have to unroof vesicles when we were doing viral cultures. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit of um, leftover knowledge because the viral cultures used to have to be purely vesicular fluid and ideally even the base of the vesicle. Right. With viral PCRs, you don't have to grow the virus in a culture, so even dead DNA mm. is going to be picked up on a PCR. So you can actually do it from um, a crusted, open papular vesicle. Mm -hmm. Certainly getting the viral fluid is still teeming with that viral DNA, mm -hmm. but even an uh, eroded area that's not crusted, that's just raw mm. has that DNA in it. And so um, we kind of kid around that you can swab the viral PCR in the air. If mm -hmm. there's, you know, DNA, mm -hmm. it'll pick it up. But but really, you know, no longer do you need to find an intact vesicle, puncture it, swab mm -hmm. it really hard like you might have used right. to. Um, so it's actually better for the patient. Right. And we find that the yield, we have much more sensitivity um, when we're picking up. That's great. That's a really good HSV. tip to know. Yeah. Some providers may be inclined to culture crusty skin lesions that are consistent with impetigo if it's widespread and might require oral antibiotics. So is this necessary or should we empirically treat with a narrow spectrum antibiotic like Keflex? Yeah, so I would favor culturing, especially for widespread impetigo that you're gonna use something beyond topical. Mm -hmm. um, the reason being there's increasing amounts of MRSA mm -hmm. and um, even MSSA that's clinda resistant, for instance. So, yes, you could guess right most of the time because Keflex or Cephalexin is going to cover most impetigo. Um, but there's enough clinda resistance in MRSA that I would say culturing makes sense. And that way, three days in, if you see that it's MRSA, you call them and they're only 20% better, you know why, and you can adjust, mm -hmm. you know, based on that knowledge. The, the other time where... Um, you definitely should culture is in scenarios where it's bullous impetigo, mm. partly because bullous impetigo can look a lot like other conditions. So there's blistering conditions that mimic bullous impetigo. Um, linear IgA is one of them. Mm -hmm. So if you get a negative culture and they're not responding to antibiotics, then you know, you know you, you're leaning more towards it being an inflammatory process. Um, and then bullous impetigo usually will respond to um, cephalexin because it's almost always MSSA. 
Um, but there have been some reported cases of MRSA, so we can't be 100% sure of that either. And then do you have to actually break the bullae? Yes, and um, for bullus and patigo, you can culture bullae or crusted areas mm -hmm. um, or any purulence. For steps called it scan, you might remember, which is the same process, but it's more disseminated. For that, you have to find a purulent area because the shearing or eroded areas is just toxin-mediated mm -hmm. um, sloughing. Great. So if an abscess is either spontaneously draining or was IND'd in the office, should we always send the purulent drainage for culture or just treat empirically? I would send it because, especially with a deeper abscess, something that could turn into a cellulitis, um, something that could become a streaking lymphadenitis, or even worse, you know, a septic kind of situation. You don't want to be stuck not knowing that that was clindoresistent MRSA. You know, so I think that those are, yes, the teaching is that if you have one single draining abscess, the treatment is just to let it drain. So you may not need to treat every single person with an antibiotic. But um, they may also come back the next day with three other abscesses, or they mm -hmm. may have a cellulitis that's brewing. So even if you're not going to treat with an antibiotic, I would say it's worthwhile doing the culture. Mm -hmm. Okay. How common is MRSA in abscesses? Uh, pretty common. I mean, actually, we see MSSA causing like what we would call furuncles or pustules mm -hmm. or folliculitis. Um, but boils or abscesses are probably the most common presentation for MS MRSA that we'll see. Mm -hmm. um, not to say that MSSA doesn't cause abscesses, it certainly does, but if I see a lot of deep abscesses, it actually makes me think of MRSA more. Mm -hmm. So we obviously see a lot of eczema in primary care, um, and we see a lot of it getting super infected, or we'll see a patch that just looks a little different than it should. So when should we or shouldn't we culture those eczematous patches? Yeah, it's a good question. So kids with eczema not only get a lot of super infections with um, bacteria, but they also have bacterial super infections that can morph because mm -hmm. they've been on so many different antibiotics. So unfortunately, they're the population where we will see things like clindoresistant MRSA, and we're really mm -hmm. stuck using alternative um, antibiotics that we might not normally even use in younger kids like doxycycline mm -hmm. or um, Bactrim, for instance. So um, if you see a frank postule, um, if you see a very honey-crusted area, um, especially if it's on the face and you know you're going to be treating more aggressively, um, I would definitely culture. And it's also, it's not just to guide treatment decisions for that one infection, but you want to gather information kind of along the way as they're getting older because we'll look back sometimes even when we're seeing someone in the emergency room, for instance, and if they've had a culture even six months ago, if they had a culture six months ago from a primary care office and it showed something like MRSA, in the ER in that moment will actually, it'll guide our decision making. So we'll specifically then choose Clinda or mm -hmm. Bactrim, for instance, or doxycycline when we know it'll cover um, MRSA or something that might be otherwise resistant. So the more information, the better from a culture standpoint. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's a good point that these kids are on frequent antibiotics, yeah. so they're a little more high-risk population. So perianal strep dermatitis typically presents with a red, well-demarcated perianal rash that's itchy. So if we see this, should we do a strep culture or just empirically treat? And if we are culturing, are we doing this with just the rapid strep test like we do for strep pharyngitis? Right. Both good questions. Um, I would say yes, culture it. And that's because 
It's not always strap. Mm -hmm. It's actually sometimes staph mm -hmm. that can cause perianal strap or perianal, you know, um, right. infection. So um, it can be strep A. I've had recently had strep B. Mm. Um, and then you can have staph, including MRSA. So sending a regular bacterial culture is actually the right thing to do. Okay. If you only had a rapid strep and you were practicing somewhere where there were limited resources, for instance, you probably would pick it up. But what I, I called the lab to ask them this question when I saw you were going to ask me, it's basically the answer is it's not a CLIA certified way to pick up strep. So right. they can't say that that's the way you should do it. Got it. Um, so, and it only detects group A strep. So you're going to limit your ability to pick up the other pathogens I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Similarly, this came up because of that question. So if you don't mind as a tangent, yeah. we have this come up a lot with candida. So mm. we see, say, especially in the immunocompromised um, population, a pustule, and we're worried for sure about staph or other common bacterial infections, but we also can see candida present that way. So if you've only sent a bacterial culture, uh, the, the possibility of picking up Candida exists, but it's ideal to write it on the requisition. Mm. Please also look for Candida. And even better is if your institution has a specific Candida screen, mm -hmm. which is what we have here at CHOP, you can say, if you're upfront worried about both, you can send a bacterial culture. You can ask them to hold it for Candida or look for Candida, but also sending a Candida screen will guarantee that they do that. So that's two swabs. Okay. And then in that population, because you're also potentially worried about things like aspergillus, you mm -hmm. can send an actual fungal culture, mm -hmm. which also should pick up candida. But sometimes the more you do in that population, especially the better. Okay, great. That's good to know. Um, what suspected diagnoses should we culture from a public health standpoint? So certain um, things that we see like measles um, or varicella, that maybe we are able to diagnose clinically, and maybe it's a classic case, but when should we do it just for the sake of public health? Yeah, so from a skin standpoint, measles and mumps would not be diagnosed by a swab, right? So that's more serologies. Um, certainly important, especially in this day and age where we're seeing outbreaks popping up. Mm -hmm. um, the others that we'll be able to pick up from a skin standpoint are um, meningococcemia, which would be like for, you know, it'd be more septic, infarcted area, sometimes little pustules, gynecoxemia for sure, um, and then syphilis actually are probably the most important ones that would be reportable. Um, what was the other one? That you varicella. Were? Varicella. That's more important because the patient may be around a compromised population. So when I diagnose shingles, and that does happen in kids, believe it or not, totally healthy kids. Um, you have to then counsel them to not be around pregnant women, which right. there lots of young kids are around pregnant women, right? right? And then also the elderly or extremely newborns, you know, under right. six weeks right. or um, immunocompromised population. So it's more from their immediate population standpoint, but not a public health. Okay, great. Yeah. So a lot of the answers to these questions were to swab. <laughs> Is yeah. there anything that we're over-culturing from a dermatology perspective? That's a good question. I can't think of one, actually. Okay. You know, it's more often that we're wishing someone had swabbed. Okay. Um, not That's that they've over-swabbed, yeah. Listen, if dermatology's telling us we're doing a good job, yes. we're happy, so. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so tell us about what's new in dermatology and, and what kind of new technology you guys have going on. Yeah. There are a few things um, going on in our field that are really exciting, and I think they fall into kind of three categories. Okay. There's um, new testing, specifically surrounding DNA and gene testing. 
Um, so that in the last five or 10 years has exploded and it's really guiding a lot of our um, diagnoses as far as geno genetic dermatology or genodermatosis, we would call it. So that's been really exciting, even for common things like alopecia or vitiligo, there's more and more coming out mm. for that, which can guide uh, targeted treatments, which is very exciting, yeah. um, and gene therapy eventually. There's also um, another really big category is biologics. Mm -hmm. So treatments aimed at psoriasis have been um, developing, especially in the pediatric population. So we now have um, used to Kinemab uh, and Humira and Enbrel all approved for kids that are either four or 12 and up. So mm -hmm. That's been uh, dramatically improving our ability to offer on-label mm -hmm. um, treatments. And then just yesterday, a medication came out for severe atopic dermatitis um, called Dupixin or Dupilumab. And that's been approved for patients with severe asthma, chronic asthma, but now it's approved for atopic derm. So we're all excited because we've already been using an off-label and finding it to be incredibly beneficial mm -hmm. for chronic management. And this is something that does not leave patients very immunocompromised. It's just a small um, arm of the immune system that it's kind of targeting. Great. And then something I've become really passionate about and excited about is improving access to care. Mm -hmm. We have um, limited pediatric dermatologists in the country for the number of children in our country and the world. Right. So um, we've been using technology, specifically teledermatology, to improve access. and. Uh, that's happening more and more all over the country. Mm -hmm. um, in the beginning, it was more in rural areas and underserved areas, and now it's even in urban settings like ours being used. So specifically, we um, in November launched a direct-to-patient teledermatology app um, through our portal, so parents can submit a case to us in pediatric dermatology and get an answer uh, within 48 hours. That's a pay-out-of-pocket experience, mm -hmm. unfortunately, right now, but it is at least available. Mm -hmm. And in the next year, uh, six to 12 months, we're hoping to get the provider-to-provider -provider arm of that up and running, which would be funded internally by a CHOP grant, hopefully, and allow pediatricians or primary care providers in our network, specifically in CHOP, to send us cases mm -hmm. through the electronic medical record. And that would be free for pa patients mm -hmm. um, up front. Eventually, the goal is to have some portion of this or all of this covered by insurers. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that's the direction things are going, but we kind of need medical providers to support that initiative and, and kind of turn the tides. Great. Well, we love improved access for our patients, and we appreciate the support that CHOP Dermatology gives all of us, especially in the care network, but we know in the community at large, too. So thanks for all you do for our patients and for helping us understand when to swab and not to swab. Yes, it's my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.